0: Now, in our house at the moment, we are very slowly trying to catch up with um, the latest season of Bake Off. Now, I don't know—I don't know how many of you watch Bake Off. I got to the point this year where someone said to me, "Oh, did you know there's already like there's already been three episodes of Bake Off?" And I was like. I just don't know if I'm that bothered about actually watching it like I, I don't I don't know if I can be bothered like I, I've done I've done quite a few seasons there's a limit to how much like watching people make bread you can do in your life so but anyway but so we clicked it on as a family and of course one episode in I'm like I'm now like invested so I'm like I'm back in I'm back in again I'm ready for another season uh, ready to go I i I think it's because one of my great joys in life is eating delicious food. Like, I love eating. It's like it gets me through so many days. The promise of meals at various points through the day is the thing that keeps me going. And I, I, I love eating. And it turns out that even watching people make delicious food, it is a, a kind of it's a poor substitute to actually eating it. But it's it's interesting enough to keep me going. I also think, I'm also slightly intrigued as to why Bake Off works as a show. Like, why why would anybody watch it? Because if the proof of the pudding is in it's eating, if there's one thing you can't do, it's eat it. Like, you're literally watching people make something that you never get to taste. And so people are going, oh, this is delicious. And like, really, I kind of feel like I should watch that and go, is it really? Why do I care? Like, all that sort of stuff. But actually, for some reason, I don't mind that. The other thing that kind of fascinates me about why it's interesting, is there's long periods of inactivity. Like, they just put stuff in drawers for, like, hours and just leave it. Like, that's not great televisual entertainment, is it? If someone's like, I want to make a show, what are you going to do? I'm going to put something in a drawer for two hours while it rises, you'd be like, "Mm, I could probably pass on that. But for some reason, it, it works. But there is a problem with Bake Off. There's this one fundamental problem with Bake Off. And the fundamental, most significant problem with Bake Off is adverts. Right, adverts are the problem with bake-off, because I have no tolerance for adverts anymore. Adverts should not be a part of my life. I'm I'm long past the time where I'm willing to accept adverts in a show. But the bake-off is on, like, four on demand, where you literally can't even fast forward the adverts. The adverts come on, and it doesn't let you skip them. You have to watch them. And it drives me mad just sitting there like, oh, and... Anyway, and it's the same adverts over and over again. That's the problem with Bake Off. Bake Off's great, adverts are terrible. Now, as I, was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking how often there's like one fundamental problem with something which just lets it down. Like one central thing. Like, it would be great if it wasn't for this. We do it, we do it with things all the time. So, so, you know, you might say, oh, well, the problem with... I don't know. The problem with that school is the amount of wasted time that goes on. It's all fine. Most of it's great. But the biggest problem is that people just waste loads of time in it. Or you might say, the problem with Apple products is that they cost too much. You know, like there's a, there's a fundamental issue that lets the thing down. You might, if you've been around Grace Church for a while, you might be able to say, the problem with Grace Church is... I mean, I'll let you finish that off. I'm not, I'm not going to give you any ammunition. But like, you know, you might be like, oh, I love so much about Grace Church, but there's just this one thing that really nags at me. Like, why does this happen? Why do they keep doing that? So often we do this. There's, there's, we like lots about it, but there's one thing that is just so central to it that really irks us. Sometimes we do it with people too. You know, so you look at someone and you go, oh, they're great, but the problem with them is this. The problem with Ben is, He's too competitive, or he's not gentle enough, or he's too arrogant. You know, you know, you've got this thing, and it just nags at you. Like, generally, they're great, but there's just this one thing, and it just irks me and annoys me. You see, when we, when we say that, when we say the problem with such a person or such a thing is this, what we're often getting at is what we consider to be their biggest, their most significant, or maybe even more, it's more important, their underlying issue. What's the thing which motivates them or which drives them or which really lets them down? The thing which, under everything else, is the problem with them. Now, now this week, we are um, looking at Daniel 4, which I just read to you. Uh, And interestingly, this is the last time we're going to see the character of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the great villain of the book of Daniel. But after Daniel 4... We have new kings. We have a new king in Daniel 5. We have another new king in Daniel 6. This is it. This is Nebuchadnezzar's last hurrah, his last moment. Uh, and so far, we have seen Nebuchadnezzar not massively distinguish himself. So you look at him, and what's, what, what do we know about Nebuchadnezzar so far? Well, we know that he fights wars, that he besieges cities, that he kidnaps people, that he makes unreasonable demands, that he executes people for seemingly no reason. He builds giant statues in his own honor. He throws people into fiery furnaces. Uh, and as you look at kind of this character, the question that I kept coming back to is like, what what would I say is Nebuchadnezzar's problem? Like, what's his big problem? Because he does all this bad stuff. Like, what is it that if I was to say, oh, the problem in Nebuchadnezzar is, how would I finish that sentence? Now, there's lots of ways you might finish it. So you might say, oh, the problem with Nebuchadnezzar is his temper. He's just constantly quick to fly off the handle. You know, his favorite threat, I'm going to cut you into pieces and turn your houses to rubble, that he repeats whenever anyone annoys him in even the slightest way. Maybe you think, oh, if he could just control his temper, maybe he wouldn't do all this violence and random acts of cruelty. Or, Or maybe you look at it and go, yeah, he does lose his temper. That's not his biggest problem. I could go a bit deeper than that. The biggest problem with Nebuchadnezzar is that he's actually really insecure. You know, maybe you look at him and you've got your like pop psychology hat on and you go, oh, the problem is he's just insecure. He suffers from the classic paranoid leader syndrome. He's like an old fashioned Joseph Stalin, sleepless nights, fearful of losing his power. And so, what does he do? Well, he acts in ruthless and irrational ways just to try and hold on to keep hold of this power that he's constantly paranoid is going to be taken from him. Maybe that's maybe that's Nebuchadnezzar's biggest problem, he's just insecure. Maybe maybe you'd see something else as his problem. I don't know. Like, as you've been looking through the story of him, maybe you go, Oh, no, his biggest problem isn't any of those things, it's his selfishness or his anxiety or. I don't know, the fact he wasn't loved as a child or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know whether he was loved as a child. Maybe he was. But, but you know, whatever it is, maybe, maybe you'd identify something different. There's loads of potential options. But I think the book of Daniel is written in such a way to actually make it pretty clear what Nebuchadnezzar's biggest problem is. The, the way that Daniel is written highlights one element of Nebuchadnezzar's character above all the rest. It keeps coming back to it. What is Nebuchadnezzar's biggest problem? It's pride. Pride. That's the thing that is emphasized again and again in the book of Daniel. It's pride which makes him fly off the handle when he doesn't get what he wants. It's pride which makes him treat other people as entirely disposable. It's pride which makes him so insecure. It's his pride that makes him so anxious. It's pride which makes him unable to cope with any sign of disrespect or disobedience. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest. Nebuchadnezzar is presented as somebody who makes a 90-foot golden statue in his own honor. Like, if that doesn't communicate pride, I'm not entirely sure what does. Like, I've done many things out of pride, but I've never been like, right, let's make a statue to myself. I mean, I couldn't do it out of gold because I haven't got the money. But, you know, out of Lego. Like, I've never done it. Like, it's just, that's, that's, a, that's a level of pride that I'm not sure I'm familiar with. And in this chapter... He's presented as the kind of person who walks round his city saying things like, and I quote, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's pride, isn't it? It's so so obviously pride. And it's that issue that God is going to deal with in Daniel chapter 4. That's what we're dealing with here. How do we deal with Nebuchadnezzar's pride? What can we do about that? Now, I want to suggest that the fact that pride lies at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's problem should come as no surprise to us. Because throughout history, many more sophisticated uh, Christians than I have commented and observed that actually there's there's a sense to which pride lies at the heart of all sin. I want to give you a couple of examples here. They're in old-fashioned language, so you'll have to forgive that. But in, whenever it was, 1800 years ago, so in the 4th century, and the great early Christian father, Augustine, said these words. He said, pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. Now, I know it's old fashioned language, but hopefully you get the idea. His point is that if you go deep enough, all sin has pride as its starting point. Pride is that building up of ourselves, the desire for our own glory, the viewing ourselves too highly. And making our chief obsession in life, how can we make ourselves look as good as we possibly can? And Augustine was saying, if you go deep enough, every sin has that at its root. I'm going to do you one more. And this is a mere 150 years ago, as opposed to like 2000. It's still an old-fashioned language, though. It's from the great preacher Spurgeon. And he described pride in this way. Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a well-watered garden. Its every touch is evil. You may hunt down this fox and think you've destroyed it, and lo, your very exaltation is pride. None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. Again, Old-fashioned language, but I hope you get the idea. His point is, if you ever did get to the point where you could defeat pride in your life, you would immediately feel proud about having defeated pride in your life, and so it would be back. Hence why pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It's so hard to get rid of, because as soon as you think you've defeated it, you get proud about that very fact, and so it's back again. So, none have more pride than those who dream that they have none. So pride is a problem. It's Nebuchadnezzar's great problem. It's the thing that drives all of his evil and his wickedness and his insecurities and everything that happens in the book of Daniel is ultimately rooted back in his pride. And so I think it makes sense for us to think a little bit about what Nebuchadnezzar's pride looks like. And I've got a a few things to talk about. But The first is this. Nebuchadnezzar's pride looks like self-importance. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he is the most important person in the universe. He acts as if everything and everyone else in the world exists only and solely to serve him. And if they do not serve him, he reserves the right to eliminate them. To, to take his own words from verse 30, as he says about Babylon, it exists for the glory of his majesty. The entire city exists for him. Now, it strikes me that self-importance is not entirely alien to us. We often live our lives as if everybody else is merely an extra in the play of our lives. That's why we get so annoyed when someone inconveniences us. Because we believe that our needs and wants are more important than theirs. This is why we spend our lives trying to duck out of work and responsibilities, because we believe that other people should serve us, not the other way around. This is why we find criticism so crippling and praise so intoxicating because we're obsessed by our own self-importance and we need everyone else to affirm it. Have you ever wondered why criticism seems to hit us so hard and why we just are constantly fishing for that bit more praise? Because we're we're consumed by our own self-importance. We're all inclined, like King Nebuchadnezzar, to think too highly of ourselves. But I want to suggest that Like all sin, that feels appealing. It feels like, wouldn't it be great to think really highly of myself? Wouldn't it be great to be constantly being built up and praised? Like all sin, it feels appealing, but I want to suggest it causes quite a lot of damage. So here's here's some issues that I think come with our sense of self-importance. The first is, it causes genuine real insecurities. Because we're constantly feeding ourselves this diet of self-aggrandisement. This is how great I am. And because of that, we become insecure. Because our view of self is so inflated that we can't live up to it. We, We can't ever achieve our own sense of who we are. And so then when the reality of failure and sin and criticism or powerlessness hits, What happens is all our insecurities come flooding back and we feel crushed and insignificant and worthless. And so what do we do? Well, we combat it by feeding our own self-importance all over again and building ourselves up until we end up at a point where our view of ourselves is so exalted we can't reach it again, and so we crash again. I I can genuinely say that is so often the cycle of my life. I build, I, I end up feeling rubbish about myself. So what do I do? I start convincing myself how great I am. And bit by bit, I do it more and more until what happens? I fail in some way. I let myself down. I suddenly catch a glimpse of all the ways I'm not as great as I thought I would and suddenly I crash to bottom again. It's This vicious cycle of constantly building up our own self-importance only to fail to live up to it. See, pride breeds insecurities. We live in a, in a society which seems to promote a building up of pride, and yet, well, what do we live in? We live in a society with unbelievable levels of insecurity because the two go hand in hand. Pride feeds insecurities. But the second problem with, with self-importance is that it leads to a breakdown in relationships. Because if we relate to everybody else as if we are the most important person in the world, then no meaningful, long-lasting, joy-filled relationships are possible. That's not, that's not a recipe to relate to another human being well. And so what ends up? Well, we end up feeling lonely and isolated without anyone who loves us or anyone who we actually love. Self-importance destroys relationships because there's no mutuality in it. And the final reason why I think self-importance is so damaging, is because it saps the joy out of life. We're never able to enjoy the beauty or successes or glory of something else because that threatens our own sense of self-importance and so what are we doing? We're constantly criticising and putting down and comparing ourselves to something else. We're never able to forget ourselves And because of that, we can never simply enjoy singing or worshipping or another person or dancing or a natural conversation because everything is carefully calculated to keep feeding our sense of self-importance. Nothing has any intrinsic worth anymore apart from how does it make me look to everybody else? Self-importance saps joy out of life like few other things. So. So Nebuchadnezzar's got this problem of pride, and it shows itself in self-importance. It also shows itself in self-satisfaction. Now, it's similar but not the same. And it's perhaps embodied by this phrase that he says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power? You see, he's not only obsessed by his own importance, but by his own achievements. This is what I have done by myself. And let's be honest, doesn't this often lie at the heart of our pride? Think about the things you're prideful about. So often they are things like this. Haven't I got great children? Didn't I do that thing at work so much better than anyone else would have? Aren't I better looking, more intelligent, more fun to be around, more down to earth, less judgmental? Pick your the thing that you take pride in, fill in the blank, than everyone else. And so Nebuchadnezzar looks around his empire and he says, look at all that I've achieved. Look at what I've done. Aren't I amazing? And I mean, you could legitimately say that if any human being at that point in history had some right to feel self-satisfied, it was King Nebuchadnezzar after all. He was the most powerful man in the world probably at that time. You know, the leader of the biggest empire. The most powerful, wealthiest person in the world. But he falls into the same trap that we all fall into with self-satisfaction, which is we take credit for things that actually are not all down to us. Let's just examine his claim for, for a minute. Could Nebuchadnezzar legitimately say that he had built Babylon himself? My guess is he didn't lay a single brick. I, I doubt he did much of the actual building. and my, I also guess that he didn't design any of it. He probably didn't design any of it. So what did he actually contribute to this great city that he's now taking all his pride in? Well, he maybe commissioned it, so he maybe told some other people to do it. He may have funded it, but where he got the money from is probably slightly dubious. So, uh, like, if you've stolen the money to fund something, can you really take the credit for that? I don't know, you, you decide. So, so when he says, isn't this the great Babylon that I myself have created? Well, the best you can say is, kind of. Like, maybe you, you contributed something to it. But actually, even if you were willing to accept that, if you delve a little deeper, it becomes increasingly debatable how much of the credit for even that he could have taken. Because after all, it was his father who had formed the Babylonian Empire, not him. He merely inherited it. Like, What credit can you take for having to happen to have been born as the leader of an empire? Like, He had no control over that. It's not like, oh, I worked so hard and so I was born as the emperor to this thing. It, It was just the position he was born into. He inherited the role, born into a position of power and wealth. He may have been very good at it, but he had no control over the position he was born into. And if he'd been born into a different position, he wouldn't have achieved any of these things. You see, he's so self-satisfied with all that he's achieved. And you look at it and go, well, how much of that can you actually take credit for? Like, what in that, in all that stuff that you're self-satisfied, can you actually say, that was me? A fraction I don't know, if if the cat fits where it, don't we often fall into the same trap? We feel so self-satisfied about how clever we are when in reality only a tiny fraction of our cleverness was ever down to us. Our intelligence is down to a whole host of factors that we have no control over. Our genetics, our upbringing, the education available to us, the society and culture we grew up in, none of which we had any control over. And yet we feel so self-satisfied over it. We do something clever, and we feel so pleased with ourselves, despite the fact that a lot of it had nothing to do with us in the first place. The same is true for many things we're tempted to feel proud about. Our children, our looks, our achievements, our bank balance. We tend to act like Nebuchadnezzar, taking all the credit for things that we were best partly responsible for. this is the kind of pride that's extremely common and it leads to that sense of entitlement that many of us experience because we believe we've earned certain things and achieved certain things we feel entitled to them when actually we have done nothing or very little to earn them for for example we all tend to feel entitled to good health when really we have not earned it any more than people with poor health have earned that we often feel entitled to a certain amount of money and a certain standard of living when really we only have that because of the time, geography and society that we happen to have been born into. It's so easy to become incredibly self-satisfied about things that actually had very little to do with us in the first place. So Nebuchadnezzar's pride, it looks like this incredible self-importance, it looks like being unbelievably self-satisfied, but But the final thing that we see, the final aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, which is drawn to our attention in verse 27, if you see it, is that Nebuchadnezzar's pride is not just an internal thing. It actually leads to all kinds of wickedness. Like all internal things, it has an external expression. It shows itself in, to take Daniel's words, wickedness and unkindness. Because pride impacts how we relate to other people. Our self-importance tends to make us willing to use other people and trample on them because, after all, we are the thing that matters most. Our self-satisfaction makes us quick to anger and unkindness when we think we're not getting what we deserve. Our pride makes us uncompassionate as we think, well, I've earned what I've got, so why don't they just pull their bootstraps up and sort out their lives? Nebuchadnezzar's pride leads to all kinds of sins and wickedness. And what does Daniel call him to do? He says, renounce that. Turn away from that. Because pride is something which is worth us fighting. If If you're sat here today and you're thinking, right, I've heard all this stuff about pride, but what am I meant to do? Here's what I want to encourage you. Pride will be a destructive influence in your life because all sin is by definition destructive. God God doesn't arbitrarily call things sin. He calls things sin because they're bad. (laughs) Like that's what makes them a sin. Pride is bad for you. God doesn't warn you against pride because he's trying to withhold something good from you. He warns you against pride because he's trying to protect you from something destructive. Pride destroys our self-esteem. It saps the joy from life. It makes the relationships we long for impossible. It leads to anger and harshness and envy. Pride is bad for you. That's why I want you to combat it. That's why I want you to learn the humility that Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn here. Pride is bad for us. It's bad for those around us. But the other thing that pride does is it prevents us from knowing God. It keeps us away from God. The Bible's message is that you are not the center of the universe, but that God is. The Bible's message is that we were not made to worship ourselves, but to worship the God who made us. The Bible's message is that we are not entitled to all the good things we have, but rather God generously gives them to us. The Bible's message is that we are not created to be independent, but rather to be dependent on God. The Bible's message is that we are sinful people who need forgiveness rather than perfect people who can look down on others. We are meant to relate to God as our superior, as our father, as our judge, and gloriously also as our saviour. You know what will stop you from relating to God in that way? Pride. Pride. You'll never relate to God as you should do for as long as you are filled with your own self-importance and self-satisfied in your own achievements. That is the chief problem with pride. Until we let go of our pride, we cannot enjoy God. We cannot follow him. And crucially, we cannot ask him for the forgiveness that we need. If you're someone sat here today who's never come to God and asked him to forgive you, the likelihood is the thing that's preventing you is pride. Your sense that I want to be able to sort this out myself or that sense of I'm already good enough and I shouldn't need that from God. This is why Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar that he must learn to recognise that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and that he gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar must let go of his pride all his pride over this kingdom that he's created and learn that, u- that ultimately he, like everyone else, is entirely dependent on God. Because only by doing that, can he ever relate to the God who made him as he should. The question is, how are we gonna learn humility? Now, if I battle with par- pride and you battle with pride, if like Spurgeon said, pride is this thing that we can never quite get rid of, How are we going to learn humility? How are we going to humble ourselves so that we can relate to God appropriately? I want to suggest there's two options given to us here. And you can kind of think about which of these is going to work for you. Because the first way that we can learn humility is by listening to what God says. Because God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar and calls him to humble himself. That's what the whole point of the dream is. The whole point of the dream is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand and let go of your pride. It's his first opportunity to learn humility. God gave him this dream and Daniel's interpretation as a warning to him. And Daniel makes clear at the end that the point of the warning was so that he could repent of his pride and acknowledge that heaven rules. Now you, right here, right now, can learn in the same way. You can learn humility by listening to what God says as he reveals them to us in his Bible. As we hear God tell us that each one of us is sinful and in need of forgiveness, we can accept that as being true of us and find humility through that. As we hear God tell us that the only way to live the lives he created us to live is by finding the free forgiveness he offers, not by earning it ourselves, we can believe that and come to him empty-handed asking for mercy. As we hear God tell us that each one of us deserves judgment for the pain and evil we have brought into the world, we can believe that and recognize that none of us are guilt-free. As we see Jesus suffering death and torture and judgment for us, we can allow that to humble us as we recognize that that's what each one of us deserves. You see, in the face of all that the Bible teaches us and all that God has done for us, it is impossible to remain proud. So you can listen to what God says about who you are, about who he is, about what he's done for you. And you can allow that to humble you. But let's be honest, aren't most of us a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar? Like words only penetrate so deep. You can hear those things, but they don't. we still cling on to that pride. We still feel quite self-important. You see, many of us don't learn humility that way. We hear what God says in the Bible and we ignore it. Or or we maybe theoretically believe it to be true, but we still spend our lives proudly self-congratulating ourselves and looking down on others. Often, what does it take to learn humility? I mean, doesn't it take an experience that humbles us, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar's? That's what it took for Nebuchadnezzar. It's not until we see sin in such a way that we are shocked that we could hurt someone so deeply or fall so short of our own standards that we really understand our own wickedness and need of forgiveness doesn't matter how many times we hear it how many times God says it it's not until we do something and we think I can't believe that I would do that that we finally recognize how far short we fall It's only when our life gets turned upside down by a health issue or bereavement or a financial crisis that we really understand how powerless we are and how dependent on God we are for everything. In an instant, Nebuchadnezzar was made aware of just how fragile he was. For all his power and all his wealth and all his self-importance and all that he'd achieved, in a second it was gone. See, then he finally understood how meaningless it all was. And the same is true of us. There's not one of us who in an instant could not have all of our self-reliance, all of our security, all of the things we feel so proud and self-satisfied about taken away. Ultimately, in the face of God's judgment, Nebuchadnezzar found himself completely powerless and dependent on God's mercy, just like everyone else. I'm going to wrap this up. What are, what are we supposed to do in the light of Daniel 4? Well, it was only when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled that he could finally relate to God appropriately. We don't know what the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's life looked like. We're not told. But the end of Daniel 4 leaves us unbelievable hope. Because finally, at the end of Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar recognises that God's dominion is ultimately the only eternal dominion. That everyone else is like nothing to him. And that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now finally at the end, Nebuchadnezzar is finally able to relate to God as he was created to. And it's only through our recognising our deep need of God that we can ever truly honour and glorify him. It's only as we let go of our misplaced pride that we can truly find that his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace is sufficient for us. And that that is the only place where life really can be found. So how do we do this? Uh, my, my call for each of us is for us to let go of our pride let go of our self-importance, look at those things that we think, I I know I'm tempted to feel so self-satisfied about that area of my life, I know I'm prone to be so filled with my own self-importance in that area of my life, here's my call for you, let go of that, it's not doing anything good for you, I know you think you need it, I know you think that your identity and your sense of self-esteem and your security is built on those things, it's not, Let go of your self-importance. Let go of all those things that you're so satisfied with yourself about. And instead, humble yourself before God and find that actually in him you have everything that you need.